morning and grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so good to see you this morning. I think we have some visitors with us and we're very thankful for your presence. I uh, just wanted to let you know if you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we have Bibles that are on the back and please feel free to take one when you leave. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in your life because we know it will change you, we know it will help you and so we hope that you'll take advantage of that. Uh, we're trying to be just Christians and Christians only and to follow the scriptures and to be what the Lord desires for us to be. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about that if we uh, have any opportunity. But thankful for your presence here this morning. Over the past year, in fact, over the past recent months, the Christian world at large was shocked due to the news stories that was dropped recently made by about, rather, deceased Christian apologist and well-known author Ravi Zacharias, who, after he was passed, was accused of sexual misconduct. Now, initially, the allegations were kind of looked at with suspicion and speculation due to their timing after his passing, and there was an ardent defense of uh, the image of this man that they knew, and even myself was somewhat skeptical when I heard these accusations. I had uh, books from Robbie uh, within my library and had benefited from them in the past and had listened to many of his, his lectures and to follow his work uh, closely uh, to an extent. But sadly, as time went on and more accusations came out and more evidence came out and more evidence surfaced, it seems that the allegations were true. And it was shocking to many people, my, myself included. And maybe if you, some of you haven't heard of this. Maybe some of you aren't uh, as aware of it. But due to the, the impact of his ministry and due to the impact of his influence, the impact of this story and what has happened will be felt for many years. The ripple effects of what was perceived to be a very godly man on the outside, and what actually was within his private life is a very painful story for many people, and myself included. And as you're looking at the story, you're thinking, well, how could this happen again? Because as we know, it's not the first time that a scandal has broke out over a high-profile Christian leader, whether it's sexual, whether it's financial, whether it's uh, corruption of power. It's happened many, many times. And sadly, for most of us, we don't have to go so high profile, we don't have to go so popular level to find stories of individuals 
maybe even growing up or within our own local congregation or our local church or a church that we were associated with of individuals who professed something publicly about who they were but who were deeply different in their private life. In fact, we don't even have to look to other people, do we? Because all of us, in some sense, like to appear far more religious than we actually are sometimes. Uh, Many of us like to appear far more ardent, far more faithful to other people. We like to appear that way to other people more than we actually are. And Scripture has a stinging word that it uses to call that type of activity. And the word is hypocrite. It's a stinging word, isn't it? Even to say that word, hypocrite. And yet it is a word that has been leveled against Christianity by non-believers, by outsiders, even from those who were Christians and who fell away because of the hypocrisy they saw by what was professed publicly and what they knew to be true privately about these individuals. Interestingly enough, our initial hesitation, we have an initial hesitation to talk about things like this. We, we kind of want to cover up these stories when leaders fail. We want to cover up our own deficiencies. We don't want to talk about our struggles. We don't want to talk about our failures because maybe we're afraid we'll be rejected or maybe we're afraid that the outside world will look at us differently or it will cause people to not come to church or be a part of the church and so we're afraid of that. But interestingly enough, our Lord and Savior spent a lot of his time in his ministry talking about what? Religious hypocrisy. Warning against the dangers of portraying a particular public image while we are living a different way privately. So as as the church, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about this. Haven't we learned by now that our refusal to talk about these things has gotten us to the point of where we are right now? Of this uh, desire to cover things up and hide them out of fear of public perception? Because, brethren, that's certainly not what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus tells us, or Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and verse 11, to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to expose them. And that's a difficult thing, and that's a tough thing, but it is an absolutely necessary thing. And so this morning, I want us to be opening our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And, And we want to look at what Jesus talks about here as the necessity of entering into the secret and sacred place of genuine religion. And... That is what the title of the sermon is, The Secret and Sacred Place, and it's taken from Matthew chapter 6. I want us to read, we're going to jump around a little bit because there is a little bit of an intersection here that we're going to skip over and come back to with the Lord's Prayer. But let's start in verse 1 of Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that you may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy and do not let your le- when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you are get your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's jump down to verse 16. Or sorry, let's keep reading verse 5, then we'll jump down to verse 16. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now jump down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you totally. Or will reward you. What is the main thought that Jesus is trying to get across here? Because it seems a little bit at conflict, and we'll talk about this uh, in a moment, with the scripture that was just read earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, when Jesus says, hey, let your light shine. Let people see you. What's Jesus' main thought here? What's he trying to get to? Jesus' main idea, and this is our main thought for our sermon this morning, is this. Jesus exposes our tendency to seek affirmation from people rather than acceptance from God. So he exposes our tendency to seek affirmation from people rather than acceptance from God, and then he directs us into authentic experience, authentic relationship. So he first needs to expose something. Number one, he needs to expose that we have a tendency to seek affirmation from people, from other humans, from other people. We live, I think it's valid to say that we live in a self-consumed culture. We live in a culture and in a society where we really, really like ourselves. Or we really like people to think that we like ourselves, at least. And of course, it's no different from the beginning of the story, right, within Eden, where it was all about, I want to be a God. I want to be like God. And we like to be like God, except we like to take the power from God, and we want all the glory to shine on us. We want people to see how good and great we are. We want them to at least perceive that or to believe that. And we have an amplified platform for our self-glorification within social media today. Probably in no greater culture and no greater society has it been easier to prop ourselves up and to show ourselves and to glorify ourselves than it is today. Our worth is determined by likes, by shares, by follows, by views. We have a new phenomenon within, within our culture called virtue signaling. Have you ever heard that before? Virtue signaling. And the whole concept behind virtue signaling is that you can feign interest within a moral subject or an important subject, you can kind of show that you are recognizing it. Hey, I stand with this. I stand with this person. You'll have uh, little images that you put on social media and you change your profile picture to say, I stand with this person. And that's often called virtue signaling because what you're trying to say is, hey, look at me. I'm virtuous. I'm good. I care about this thing. So you get the recognition. You get the recognition without the investment. You get the the, the recognition without real investment. 
And so you can act like you care about something when in real life you don't really care about it. You don't put any money or effort towards it. And it's not simply political, but it's religious as well. It happens religiously as well. It is scary. It is scary how easy it is to create a profile of religious devotion in today's world. You can get on Twitter, and you can, I, listen, I can, I can get on Twitter, and I can put a picture of me in my suit, and I can tweet out very spiritual things, and people think that I'm a spiritual giant. And it is scary how easy it is to put on a facade of spirituality in today's world. And we have convinced ourselves, within the modern church, we have convinced ourselves that the perception of holiness is actual holiness. That if you are perceived to be holy by others, or you are perceived to be a Christian by others, then you are actually a Christian. And of course, this isn't only in social media, but it's within our local congregations and within our community as well. We really want people to believe that we have it all together. We really want to put on a face, and we want to make people think that we have no problems in our family, we have no issues here, and that we're a genuine Christian family or a Christian couple. But what does that even mean when we say that and when we think that? That we want people to believe that we're genuine Christian family or we're a genuine Christian couple. What do we even mean by that? Does a Christian family have no need for grace? Does a Christian family have no need for mercy? Does a Christian couple have no need for forgiveness or brokenness? Is there no place for that within the Christian family? If not, that doesn't sound very Christian to me. We have churches now, for example, in contrast to that, flipping it with congregations. We have congregations now who are changing and shifting their beliefs about core biblical doctrines that have been held for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, Christian doctrine changed. Last week, it changed. And all of a sudden, the historical Christian tradition and the, the traditions of Christian teaching that have been upheld by Scripture and practice for ages are suddenly wrong, according to them. Why is that? Is it? Is it that they suddenly know the Scriptures better than the saints of the past? Or is it rather... That there is great pressure from the outside world to conform and to change. And whenever they do change and conform, there is a round of applause from the unbelieving world. That we have become progressive, that we have become modern, and that we have finally opened our eyes to the ridiculousness of some of these ancient Christian teachings. What's the drive behind that? It's the same drive as anyone that likes to appear a certain way before certain people. That has always been. That Jesus is talking about here. And so we find ourselves in a culture that, that is deeply invested in what Jesus is talking about here. Of appearing righteous when in fact there is no genuine righteousness there. You have come up to me after some of these sermons that we've preached through the Sermon on the Mount and said, man, that really was applicable to me. 
and it uh, hit home to me, and I'm thankful for that, but that has nothing to do with me. That has everything to do with what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount is, is he is rooting out our fallen human nature. He is rooting out the sin that has always been there and will always be there until he returns. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come to teachings like that, like, wow, that's really applicable to today. Because Jesus knew what he was talking about. And Jesus understood that the reason, the reason that we are more concerned with affirmation from other people, the reason that we're concerned with that, uh, particularly when it comes to our own righteousness, is because we believe three lies. We, be, we believe three lies. Number one, we believe that praise equals piety. We believe that praise equals piety. That word pious is a good word. We, we, we need to use it more often. It's a good word. It means God-fearing. It means holy. It means someone who is devoted, deeply devoted to spiritual living. And Jesus says that praise from other people does not equal piety. But we believe that lie too often. He warns against the equating the praise of a public persona of righteousness with genuine righteousness. In fact, when we do this, when we, when we put so much emphasis on the praise of others, it can actually push us farther away from actual righteousness and actual justification. Because if our faith and if our religion is driven by what people think of us, we stop caring about what God thinks of us. We stop caring about what the Lord thinks of us. If we see, receive what Jesus refers to as the reward here, if we receive the reward of glory, then we don't feel the need to receive the reward of God's gift of grace. If we have the glory from men, who needs the gift of God's grace? I've got it all together, and everyone seems to think so as well. I say all the right things, I do all the right things. Who needs grace? In fact, genuine piety, genuine godliness is born from a dependence upon God which comes from our own self-reflection. And it comes from our understanding as we reflect on our sinfulness. We understand that we are not as good as we like other people to think we are. And we need God's grace. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should not do public acts of piety public acts of devotion. He's not saying that. We already saw in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he wants us to do good works so that we may be seen, right? That's what we read in Matthew 5, and glorify God in heaven. So he wants us to do that. We, we were redeemed by grace for good works, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. So he wants us to do good works. And what is Jesus talking about? He wants to know what is your why. What is your why? It's not the, the acts themselves. Why are you doing them? What is pushing you? What is motivating you to do these acts of faith? What is the why behind what you're doing? Is it done out of appreciation for God's mercy? Is it done out of love for him? Is it done out of love for other people? Or for the praise of the crowd? And Jesus addressed the Pharisees in this way in Luke chapter 6 and verse 15. When he told them there, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Now here's a terrifying statement. But God knows your heart. 
He said, you have put on this outer veneer of righteousness and you look justified from everybody else's vantage point. You justify yourselves before men. People look at you and they say, that's a saved person. But Jesus says, you're not fooling God. God knows your heart. And he is not deceived by the mask that you wear. So we believe this lie that praise equals piety and therefore we seek affirmation from other people. The second lie that we believe is that imitation equals sincerity. That if we just kind of play the part of being faithful, if we fake it till we make it, that we're genuinely faithful. In fact, the word hypocrite means someone who plays a part. It was, it was a word that was used to describe Greek actors who would put on different masks. They were hypocrites. And it became to be used for someone who puts on a different mask when they're in front of different people to be perceived a different way. Now, sometimes we generally think that if someone's being a hypocrite, we generally think that it's, it's intentional, right? They're intentionally deceiving other people. They want other people to think something that they're not. That is true sometimes. That is not true all the time. Sometimes, and this is, this is very scary, sometimes you can be a hypocrite and you don't even know it. You have deceived yourself into thinking that you are more faithful than you actually are. And that's a scary place to be. And this is why James says in James chapter 1 and verse 19, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. See, you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're a pretty good Christian because you come to worship every Sunday and you hear a sermon and you sing a song and then you go out and live your life the way that you want to live it, but you've convinced yourself, you've deceived yourself that you're actually faithful because of where you are for an hour on Sunday. And Jesus says that imitation does not equal sincerity. In fact, Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, a very troubling passage that on Judgment Day, there are going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, have we not what? Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we, haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? What's he saying there? Are, are these people just, 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 just being intent? Are they trying to trick Jesus? Are they trying to say that they've done things that they didn't actually do? There is no reason for us to think that they didn't actually do those things. But what's the problem? They believe that because publicly they were doing all of these things, they privately knew the Lord, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Now that has to be a terrifying revelation on Judgment Day to think that you knew the Lord your entire life when in fact he never knew you. Now if that doesn't make you tremble, brethren, I don't know what does. And if I'm being completely honest with you, this sermon was deeply challenging for me. Because if anyone has a public face for the faith, it's me. Let's just be honest. I'm up here before you. You see my life probably a lot more than I see yours. And this passage makes me tremble. In fact, I want... I'm, I'm asking for your prayers right now as your brother in Christ to be praying for me. To pray for me that I 
truly take these passages seriously. And, and that's my request of you. I'm being genuine in this. I want you to pray for me. Because this should terrify us. I know it terrifies me. How easily we can be self-deceived. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13, he said, listen, Timothy, there's going to be imposters, imposters, who are deceiving people, and then he goes on to say, and they have been deceived themselves. They are going to deceive and be deceived. And he says they're imposters because of this. They are actors who have lost themselves in the part. Have you ever heard of actors like that? They get so invested in a part. I remember um, when the uh, Batman movie came out and Heath Ledger was playing the, the, the villain, the Joker. And uh, sadly, he ended up, he ended up uh, dying from a drug overdose. And many believe the reason he lost himself was because he became too invested in the part he was playing. He lost himself in the role, people say. And sometimes we can lose ourselves in the role of playing a Christian that we come to believe that we actually are one when we aren't. And so Jesus says you cannot equate imitation with sincerity because an imitated faith cannot endure affliction and it cannot endure judgment. So we believe the lie, number one, that praise equals piety, that imitation equals sincerity, and so we seek the affirmation of other people. But the third lie that we believe is that approval equals validation. That approval equals validation. Everyone thought that the people that Jesus is talking about, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who had this public perception of righteousness, everyone thought that they were the righteous ones. They were approved, and therefore, since they were approved, they were valid. Their teaching was valid. Whatever they did was validated because they had been approved by the masses and by the crowd as righteous. Since they were the ones in power, the ones with influence, the ones who people listened to, then they were validated by God as well. In fact, you see this in John chapter 7, verses 47 and 48, when, G when the Pharisees are talking to the soldiers who, come, who were told to take Jesus, and the soldiers come back, and they said, well, they said, where is he? And they said, well, we couldn't, we've never heard anybody talk like this man before. And what do the Pharisees say there? They answered them, have you also been deceived? Now notice what they say here. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? We haven't believed in him, and we're the valid ones. We've been approved by the crowd. We're the valid ones. We haven't believed in him. So what makes you think that your belief is valid? The approval of the world or even of other religious people or institutions does not equal validation from God. It doesn't. And we need to be very careful of thinking that if somebody approves of something, that means it's valid. And churches need to be on guard about that, thinking that, well, because the world applauds us and approves us, then what we are doing and how we're interpreting this scripture is right. In fact, the reality is it is most likely wrong. Because of what Jesus said earlier in Luke 16 and verse 15, what is held in high esteem by men, Jesus said, is an abomination to God. And so we believe these three lies. We believe that, for example, that 
this approval equals validation. And so we seek the affirmation of people within our own lives rather than, as Jesus says, number two, acceptance from God. We seek affirmation from people rather than acceptance from God. Now, we said a moment ago, Jesus wants us to be people who are about doing public works, who, who aren't just trying to like, we're not ashamed of being Christian. And as we go about living our life, if we're not ashamed in that way, there's going to be public things that we do that are in the name of Christ. In fact, there are three specific acts that he mentions here, which are generosity or almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Now, these are acts of devotion or piety that Jesus expects of his people in some way. Now, now by the way, some of you are hesitant to say, me to say that because fasting's in there. You don't like fasting. We like prayer, and uh, we like the giving part, not so much the fasting part. There's nothing within the New Testament that should make us think that Jesus doesn't expect fasting of us occasionally. Now, there is um, not a required day as there was in the Old Covenant, but you see it being practiced by the New Testament church in the book of Acts, and you see Jesus expecting it of his people within Matthew chapter 6. And so these three acts of prayer and of fasting and of generosity are specific acts that were kind of the trinity of religious devotion during Jesus' day. If you did these three things and if you did them publicly before other people, people thought you were righteous. But how do you check your motives then? If, if sometimes the things that you're doing are going to be public, we say public prayers here, we have public scripture reading, you might do that with your own family, whatever it is. How do you check your motives then to make sure that you are operating out of the right why? That you're operating out of the right reason. Well, number one, Jesus says, how do you check it? You give without any grandstanding. You give without any grandstanding. He says, when you're generous to people, he said, you don't, you know, blow any trumpets. Hey, look, everybody, I'm giving a lot of money here. This guy needs my help, and I'm giving it to him. He said, in fact, you do it so to where your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing. What's he talking about there? It's a funny image, right? Your right hand's doing something, and your left hand's like, hey, what are you doing? And the left hand's doing something, and the right hand's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, it's, it's, it's just a part of you. It's not done for grandstanding. And again, within our social media-driven era, there is a great temptation. You know, we might not blow trumpets, but we're sure going to post pictures about it. Like, if we do something good, we want other people to make sure that we want, we want other people to know, Right? It's got to be validated. And we feel for some reason that if we don't do that, that it's not valid. And Jesus says, that's not true. Your father sees in secret. He sees it. He knows it. So doing this giving without grandstanding is an act of faith in God. That I know that God sees me. Nobody else might not know, but God knows. So you check your motives by giving without grandstanding. Number two, you check your motives by praying privately and personally. Now that doesn't negate public prayer. But what Jesus is saying is that there should be no disconnect by what you portray publicly in prayer and what is actually happening in your private life of prayer. We are to be people of prayer. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to pray constantly. And whatever is done publicly 
should simply be an extension of what we are doing privately. In fact, Jesus even says you might need to change your environment. You might need to go into the closet. Now, within the first century Jewish homes, the closet would have been the only private area that you could lock, generally. And so he says, go into the closet. Nobody will see you, but God will. So you check by making sure that you are praying privately and personally, but that's beyond. And then number three, he says, you check your motives by fasting without making a fuss. You fast without making a fuss about it. He says, when the Pharisees, <laughs> when the Fer- you, got, you kind of almost have to laugh at it, right? When the Pharisees fast, they want to make sure you know it, right? Oh, I'm so hungry, you know, because I love the Lord. Oh, that's a nice meal. I wish I could have it, but I'm fasting. You know, that looks real good, but, you know, I can't have it. I love the Lord too much. He said, they want you to know about it. Jesus says, listen, if you're going to fast, it's great. But do it between you and the Lord. Because the whole point of fasting is to, to convey your dependence upon God. It's a reminder, as Jesus fasted, it's a reminder that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a declaration that I am dependent upon God. And it's all about you and God. And so if you're doing it to get praise from men, what are you doing? You're robbing fasting of its entire purpose. And so Jesus says, you fast without making a fuss. And if any of those things bother you, if you don't feel genuinely faithful when you're giving without grandstanding, and when you're praying privately and personally, and when you're fasting without making a fuss, if any of that bothers you and you feel less faithful, then you might want to question your why. Why you were doing it in the first place. So he exposes our tendency to seek affirmation from people rather than, accept, rather than acceptance from God. And then he directs us into authentic experience or authentic relationship. Jesus describes that the place that we go to experience the fullness of God's fatherly love is this place that he refers to as the secret place or the secret And it is within the secret place that Jesus says, we receive the reward of God. Jesus understands that behind our religious expression, we are seeking something. And he doesn't deny that. He's not saying, well, you're seeking this reward and you shouldn't be seeking a reward. No, he says there's a true reward and there's a false reward. We're seeking God for a reward in some way. Instead, what Jesus says, instead of denying the reward aspect of it, the motivating factor behind it, instead he says, you should not be seeking, and it cannot be found within the fickle praise of other people. But it is found in the secret presence of the Lord. Now what is the reward that he's talking about here? Is the reward heaven or is it eternal life? Maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. Maybe that's the bigger picture here. But he seems to be talking about something that you will receive in the given moment. And what's interesting is, is that the, the true reward is placed in contrast to the false reward of the applause and the praise of men. So it seems as if the true reward will be similar to what the false reward is, but genuine. So let's ask this question. What do we receive? What do we receive when we are applauded by and accepted by others and by the world? 
is it not to an extent happiness that we are accepted, that we are loved for at least a moment? Uh, maybe value, purpose, meaning, glory, moment of glory? That comes with the applause and the acceptance and the praise of the masses for a moment. There's a great th thrill to being loved and accepted and adored. And we deeply hunger for these things in some way. And yet Jesus says with people it doesn't last very long. And it robs you of something genuine. And he offers in contrast to this the genuine reward, which is to be fully known and to be fully and sincerely loved and adored, to be given great meaning and purpose in the only real and substantive way, which is approval and acceptance by God. God sees and God accepts. He sees me for who I am. He knows my heart. He's not deceived by this public image that I've put on for other people. He sees me in all of my brokenness, trying to be devoted to him, trying to be good. And he sees me for who I am, and he accepts me as his child. He sees me, and he forgives me, and he seeks relationship with me. There is a reason that over and over and over again, as Jesus is talking about the secret place, he says, your father your father, your father. Your father wants to meet you here. He wants to be in genuine intimacy and relationship with you. What we are genuinely hungering for as human beings and our spirits and our souls are hungering for acceptance from God. And we try and fill that void with the hollow praise of other people because of this religious facade that we've put up. And God says, I know who you are. I know who you really are. And you can convince other people that you're not this way. But I know who you are. And if you come to me, I will receive you. I will accept you. I will be in relationship with you. If you will receive me, I will receive you. And Jesus tells us that if by faith we will forsake the false promises of men. And we will seek in genuine devotion and godliness. We will seek and discover the sweet and secret blessing of authentic relationship with the Lord. This is what he offers. And this is the promise of Jesus. Now, it is human nature to assume that the perceptible, that the publicized, that the prominent moments are the things that change the world. Right? The things that everybody knows about the things that are public and publicized, the things that go viral, the trending hashtags, the prominent headlines. It's human nature to assume that those are the things that change the world. Reality, reality, it is the quiet and secret goodness of common people committed to an uncommon God that changes the tide of history. And because it is when we commit to seeking God in the secret and sacred place and the private, unassuming acts of generosity, of prayer, of 
fasting, that we ourselves are changed and empowered to transform the world around us. So this morning, you might have put on a a fake image, or you might have a false facade. If you're really struggling and you want to be genuine with others and you want to be genuine with the Lord, I want to invite you to ask for prayers from your church family this morning as I have from you. But if you're living in sin, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, then you're believing in the greatest delusion of all. And that is that your life is fine without God. And it's not. It's not. Turn to Him. Have faith in Him. Believe in Him. Repent of your sin. Confess Him as Lord of heaven and earth. Confess Him as the Son of God. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Rise and to walk newness of life. To be accepted by God. This morning, whatever your need is, why don't you come?